As we stand, let's pray and take words that have already been prayed uh, this evening as Fran led us earlier. But now, Almighty God, we pray that in the hearing of your word, you would realign our perspective and that you would burden us with your desires to see your kingdom come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please sit. Let me reiterate the welcome that Nigel offered at the beginning of the service. Uh, My name is Alan Strange. I'm the rector here at Holy Trinity. And let me offer a particular welcome to those of you who may be uh, newly among us or visiting us uh, for the first time this evening. It is that season when uh, uh, students are turning up for the first time. I'm more than usually aware of it myself because we uh, have left a student at uni this year. Uh, So a particular welcome to those of you for whom that is true, uh, but also uh, a farewell, because for some of you, it is uh, your last Sunday here before you head off uh, to university for the first time. We wish you well. Uh, If you have prayer requests to send back to us, do please uh, do that. Um, I don't know whether there's a a special kind of prayer gathering or support group uh, meeting for those who are going off to York in what I think is probably still six weeks' time. Um, It always feels that way for York. Um, Whether you get together and have little tea parties of those who've lost all their friends, I don't know. Uh, So farewell if uh, life takes you from us for a while, and welcome uh, to those who are here. Well, I'm going to begin this evening uh, with a secret. I'm sure that uh, many of you suppose that series of readings in our services are chosen with enormous insight and discernment into the spiritual state of the congregation. If there are three sermons on the parables in Matthew 13, that will be because the congregation needs, like a prescription from an enormously wise doctor, exactly what those three sermons on that one chapter can provide. Well, it ain't necessarily so. Sometimes it is so. Sometimes it's something much more ordinary. Sometimes it's simply this. The series on Habakkuk is over. The series on 2 Timothy will start in Freshers' Week of student term. What have we got that could fill three weeks? And so we get three weeks on the parables in Matthew 13. Not difficult, not mysterious, just a useful little filler for a few weeks. And then I'm surprised. I think of all the times I must have read chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel, and I realize, as I actually come to these things, that these are not at all the comforting, easy little stories that I thought would do for a filler. The parables in chapter 13, do turn to it, page uh, 980, we'll do a bit of zipping around. The parables in chapter 13 are all about the kingdom of God except that they're not. Not entirely. They're all, in fact, about the impact of the kingdom of God. Uh, You may have been with us for the last few weeks. If not, let me tell you that we've learned from these parables that the story of the kingdom of God is that it has results that look like both failure 
and fruitfulness. That was the parable of the soils. That the kingdom people are mixed up with non-kingdom people. We've had parables of the wheat and the weeds last week. That it grows enormous, this kingdom. The parables of the mustard tree and the yeast. And today, we've heard that it is worth and that it demands a total focus, selling everything we have for it. And yet at that point, I find myself wanting to tear my hair out, to grab Jesus by the lapels. I don't know whether you wore lapels, but you know what I mean. And say, yes, that's what the kingdom of God does, but will you please tell me what it is? What is the kingdom of God? Where would I look for it? Who is in it? Am I in it? What what am I supposed to do about it? It seems that Jesus has told me everything about the kingdom of God in these chapters, except the things I actually want to know about it. The books and commentaries are full of notions about what the kingdom of God isn't. It's not a territory or a place like we mean when we say the United Kingdom. It's too abstract, too vague to call it kingship. So if we ask about what it means, there's all kinds of options of interpretation, and personally I find it most helpful to remember the context of what Matthew is doing as he records these sayings and teachings and works of Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus very much as the fulfillment of what is going on in the Old Testament. Jesus is the new Moses when he sits down on the mountain and begins to teach at what we call the Sermon on the Mount. But but Matthew, in that uh, memory of Jesus, is taking us back. He's taking us back in the Sermon on the Mount to Moses. But when he's talking about the kingdom, he's taking us back, uh, back to the days, if you remember your Old Testament, When the Israelites, though it was before Solomon, before David, before Saul, the days when the Israelites had no king, when they'd not yet asked to be like the nations round about them in wanting a king, in having a king. And yet the people of God did have, people of Israel did have a a king before Saul. God himself was their king. And when they promised in the the great teachings of the law, to love the Lord their God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength, those were the kinds of words that were used by, um, imagine you're some uh, great uh, Lord in the ancient world, when you finally trekked across from your own bit of territory to the great king to whom you owed allegiance, you would bow down in the ancient world before that king and uh, make a declaration that ran something like, I set before you all my love of heart and mind and soul and strength. What we are asked for when uh, we're asked to love the Lord our God, those are the obligations that belong to a king. Jesus is taking his people, in other words, back to the days behind the Romans and the Persians and the Babylonians and even their own kings back to the days when God himself was an utterly reliable king, worthy of all love. 
And if that's the case, if that's what's going on through Matthew's gospel, then the kingdom of God becomes simply what the world is like when God himself is on the throne. Well, I can call it simple, but it's an unusual simplicity. Uh, Look to the, uh, well, let's look look at the whole chapter for a moment, Uh, chapter 13. I'm going to whiz through one or two verses in it. So, um, uh, page 978, verse 2, at the bottom there. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat on it. He tells them the parable of the soils. Verse 10, the disciples come to him and asked, why, what's going on? And then all the way through to uh, verse 23, he's explaining himself to the disciples. Then you get in verse uh, 24 through to uh, 30, a a parable of the wheat and the tares, which because of an explanation coming later, we assume is to the crowds again. Verse 31, we have the parable of the mustard seed, about the scale of the kingdom. And again, we're hint, we get this, who's being talked to, verse 34, spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using a parable. Now, verse 36, he leaves the crowd and goes into the house. His disciples come to him and say, now explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field, which if we hadn't got the clue before, now tells us that that parable was told to the crowds. And everything that happens now is told to the disciples. He explains the wheat and the, the weeds. He tells us the stories that are there for us today the kingdom of heaven like treasure and like pearls uh, and like a net that is uh, cast out and then it's sorted out into the good and bad fish and he explains it there and then. If you stack up the stories and the explanations of the stories in chapter 13, what you find is this, that when Jesus is talking to the crowds, he is obscure. When he's talking to the disciples, he is clear. Now, why would that be? Well, he's given us some explanations earlier on, and we heard it from Mark in week one, about his obscurity, his deliberate obscurity. Jesus refuses to explain things to the crowds one line at a time, as it were. Um, uh, these days, we're, 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 all, we're forever buying kit, aren't we? And we get instruction manuals. And some instruction manuals are brilliant, They kind of really help you understand. Some are rubbish. But Jesus doesn't even offer an instruction manual to the crowds. Uh, He's asking them really to figure out a great deal for themselves. But when he's with the disciples, he explains why. I am obscure for a reason. I will not, I refuse to be pigeonholed by people's expectations. I'm not going to be put into neat categories. I'm not going to let anyone say, ah, I've got it. I've got what he's been talking about, now I'll walk away from Jesus and I'll put it into practice. I will talk rather about what the kingdom of God is like, but I am not going to say what it is. And for one reason, I never want people to be able to walk away and think that they've got it when they aren't still following me. I never want them to be able to separate the kingdom of God from me, the king. This isn't a mystery that you're ever going to be able to claim you've worked out. 
This is a mystery that clicks. And it, it clicks for some, and it doesn't click for others. And in all of that, it's my father that's mysteriously at work. Now, if that kind of raises some questions, go back to chapter 11. I did say we'd buzz around a bit. And to verse 25, it's page 977. Verse 25 of chapter 11. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Go on to verse 27, partway through it. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What we're learning about the kingdom of God is that it is not something you grasp like the wise and learned people of the time might suppose. On the contrary, it is something that grasps you like a treasure that becomes an obsession and you can't get it out of your mind, or a pearl that will not let a merchant sleep. And for those for whom it clicks, who enter on this particular world of kingdom obsession, the result is utter joy, just like uh, verse 44 of chapter 13 uh, tells us this evening. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he, had it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And so, I don't know about you, but by this point I am asking of Jesus the question, is this me? Is this me, Lord? Am I like this man? Am I someone who is living out this joyful obsession? Or am I someone who is a, a failing soil, a, a, a feeble soil, a weed, a bad fish. How would you know, faced with these stories? How would you know how it's going to be for you at the end of the time? Certainly being here in this building is no help, since the stories say everyone's together until the weeds are sorted out, until the catch is divided between good and bad fish. How would you know? Well, let me take a kind of roundabout route to suggesting an answer. Over the summer, I read a book about mountaineer, a mountaineering trip to uh, K2, the second highest mountain in the world, uh, considered much more difficult to climb than Everest. The expedition was in 1939, and it resulted in a number of deaths. It, as an expedition, it failed. No one climbed it. But the story is a fascinating one of the obsession of the different climbers with getting up the mountain. It's a kind of um, soap opera. There's the rich playboy who's discovered the thrill of mountaineering and wants to try. There's the German who'd moved to America and in 1939 felt he needed to prove himself by taking his American friends up uh, K2. There's the all-American sports hero who was um, uh, uh, fit but dim. Um, and really shouldn't have been on the mountain in the first place. It's a great soap opera. If you want more details, I'll let you in later. But it's a story of obsessions. Now, in the modern period, Joe Simpson, a modern mountaineer, has said of his own obsession with climbing, that when you're climbing, you live so much in the present moment that you feel immortal. 
And that's what we normally understand by obsession. When we encounter the idea of those who might find one thing in the world and be absolutely ruled by it, sell everything they have to devote to it. It's that sort of thing we often mean. It's why we give thanks for a Caroline Skinner who's delivered Tim Skinner from such an obsession with cycling. It's the kind of obsession we meet when we encounter surfers who just spend all their time on the beach. We mean a man, and it usually is a man, who wants to be supreme in some kind of obsessive endeavor. Maybe it's the boy who trains in his golf swing in order to win the Masters one day, or the mountaineer whose ambitions grow with each mountain, or the chef who lives and dreams molecular food. So what would it be like to have that sort of obsession, but for the kingdom of God? Well, it would be nothing at all like those. I met someone yesterday who's obsessed with the kingdom of God. Not from this congregation. Very, very old. But utterly sweetened in character by decades of knowing the Lord. Forged in hard experience. Completely devoted, even in these remaining days when age and infirmity take their toll. No one will write a book about that person. And their great adventure, I was the one who came away blessed. And that opportunity comes to me because of my job. If you want to encounter a healthy kingdom obsession, then pick up Nigel's suggestion and read the Gibo book. I've not read the book, but I have heard him speak. And he is remarkable. You will be inspired. Sometimes insights into Scripture come from very simple word-chasing exercises. We're told of the laborer's joy in finding this treasure in the field. To my surprise, outside chapter 13, the only other time you get the word joy in Matthew's Gospel is when the women encounter the empty tomb. We're told that they hurry away from the scene afraid and yet filled with And what that provokes in me, those two moments of the word joy, is the thought that joy and Jesus himself are being linked. Joy for those women dawns, even in the midst of fear, at the notion that Jesus is alive again and can be met again. And doesn't that suggest that as we might have guessed, the kingdom is not a territory, it's not complicated, it is simply the life of Jesus. I read earlier from chapter 11, and when Jesus praises God for revealing things to those whom he encountered, he adds immediately, come to me, all who are weary. Pursue the kingdom, come to me. It's the same thing. And so finally, by a rather roundabout route, I can see some answers to the question that chapter 13 leaves me with. What is the kingdom? Is it talking about me? Am I in? Is it outside me? What's going on? Chapter 13 is concerned false disciples, those who are thrown away at the end of the age. And from other parts of Matthew, we learn that those false disciples say, didn't we prophesy and drive out demons and do miracles? Didn't we do stuff? 
And Jesus says it's not about whether you went away and did stuff. It's about whether you stayed with me. It's, if you like, the moment in Matthew's gospel that parallels that moment in John's gospel where he says, abide in me. Jesus says, I speak in parables precisely so that those who want to know more have to follow me. Not a solution, not an idea, not a trick, not a religion. They have to follow me. I am the mystery. I am the one revealed by my Father. The end of time will see the good and the bad divided according to how they chose me. And so it is a challenge to me. Don't get caught up on what you do for Jesus. Equally, don't romanticize a a grand obsession for him. We've probably, lots of us, had a moment, perhaps in a service, perhaps at a conference, when we've just felt, yes, this is what it's all about. This is the moment I want to live in. But that's remarkably, in some ways, like the world's version of that obsession. It's also a blessing to me, not just a challenge. Yes, even you, Alan Strange, you are a disciple. Because, and this is the important bit, even when you fail, even when you do not follow Jesus the way you want to do, the way the kingdom operates, it's nonetheless true of you that you want to get back on track. You want to follow him more closely. And that, to pick up on those last thoughts in the passage from tonight, that brings together the old, Deuteronomy with its stories of kingship and what it means for God to be king, to love God, and the new. Actually, that God, that's Jesus. There's one difference in the illustrations I've been using. The mountaineer climbs up. The believer climbs down. One will fulfill his pride and aims to do that. One aims to crucify his pride and aims to do that. One is an obsession the world will notice. One is an obsession the world will completely ignore. And I confess, I find the attraction, I find the obsession of proud achievement deeply attractive But thank God that he's revealed Jesus to me so that I know its limits. What is the kingdom of God? It is where God is back among his people as their king, recognized now in the person of Jesus, who gives joy. And that is worth obsessing about, but in a way that's very different from the way the mountaineers will do it. It's a magnificent obsession. And it is worth every loss to gain it. Let's pray. An old, old prayer from Richard of Chichester. Thanks be to thee, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits that thou hast given me for all the pains that thou hast borne for me. O most merciful Redeemer, friend and brother, may I, 
Know thee more clearly. Love thee more dearly. And follow thee more nearly. Amen.